This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, The Immunity Syndrome, Part 2. everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And today we are going through what many consider the height, the, the pinnacle of achievement for Star Trek the Animated Series. Are, are, are you serious? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Many, many, okay, many <laughs> consider this to be one of the highest achievements that the animated series has to offer. Well, I mean, it is kind of interesting to look at. I mean, I will admit it's a pretty good episode and I like it better yeah. than 90% of actual original series, but it's certainly no masterpiece. And if it's downhill from here, I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> uh Oh, <laughs> So uh, we got something about missing planets, right? Yes, this week is the utterly, ridiculously named One of Our Planets is Missing. Is it Poosh? <laughs> yeah, nobody like Poosh. About per- no, you know, how about Paravelia? <laughs> that one's missing too, I hear. And the bees are gone. <laughs> I don't think we're ever actually getting to any modern Doctor Who, so, you know. References yeah, are all you could- get. Yeah, yeah, we we could always do like a one shot uh, sort of thing, you know, and uh, like maybe the the best and worst of a modern Doctor Who. Oof. Um, <laughs> Fire breathing like cat each, people. Yeah. <laughs> we each pick one of all, uh, both, <laughs> <laughs> and if we match, then uh, we get a prize of sadness, I guess. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is this is not even you know a planet is missing some planets are missing one of our planets we can't even remember which one just yeah it's it's maybe one of the ones over this area i thought i had a planet here somewhere yeah there's a lot of planets over that way i don't know Hmm. (laughs) this one was written by mac daniels who is actually pretty well known for directing many many episodes of original series as well as appearing as a photograph uncredited in the episode Changeling as the guy who built the insane android. Ah, you mean Roy Kirk? Yep. (laughs) Aha! He's back! This time with clouds. Uh, This is one of only two of his TV writing credits, but he's a very well-known director of various shows, like I said, Star Trek, I Love Lucy, Man from Uncle. So, um, moved from directing to writing cartoons. I, I might want to point out that the uh, his uh, you know, he one of the episodes he worked on uh, as a uh, as a director I believe the last for the original series was uh, one called Spock's Brain. So maybe there's a reason there. Yeah, that that was badly directed <laughs> and edited and everything else. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I guess you know being a writer is maybe the better thing for him. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, but then he only wrote two things, and I actually couldn't find dig up the information on what the other thing he wrote was. So, um, Nash Air Flight Theater, <laughs> but that was like in the fifties. So, <laughs> okay then. 
So this one, this one we should jump into. It's actually more interesting than some of the other ones. So I do agree. It's one of the better ones so far. Let's roll. The Enterprise has been sent to investigate something called a cosmic cloud, which thinking about it sounds like some sort of like cotton candy, like galaxy themed cotton candy that you would get at a fancy candy store, like the cosmic cloud. I would kind of like to have some of that now. I'm hungry. (laughs) I don't think cotton candy is going to fill you up much. Well, yes, but it's a cosmic cloud, so that means it's big, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I will agree that if you eat a cosmic cloud's worth of cotton candy, you will no longer feel like eating. Yes. You will not be full, but you will no longer feel like (laughs) eating. (laughs) There might also be an explosion somewhere in there, but you know. So this cosmic cloud has entered the galaxy and is headed toward the Palace 14 system, which is the site of the Federation's most remote colony out there. They're spending a lot of time on the edge of the galaxy this season. Yeah, you know, just kind of hanging out there. I guess, you know, this is their patrol area now. So when the Enterprise arrives, they find the massive cloud, which in a oddly specific size comparison, we're told is the size of Saturn, Jupiter, and Neptune combined and doubled. Cool. Well, I guess we, you know, if we have a inherent, uh, you know, uh, gauging of the sizes of these planets, you know, this is going to give us a lot of information. But someone just kind of watching cartoons of the 70s, a little skeptical on that. Also, I love how this very Terra-specific reference is made by one of the aliens on the bridge, the new navigator uh, guy. Yes, uh, Lieutenant Eriks. Right? That's how you pronounce it? I don't know if they ever actually said his name in the show that I remember, but uh, if you haven't seen this, he is sort of a reptilian-looking dude with three arms who now sits at, uh, at Chekhov's old position. Does this mean he ate Chekhov? I guess Chekhov got promoted. The Chekhov yeeted out of here. <laughs> well, we'll get more into uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the the drama of that later when we get the Infinite Vulcan. But you know, <laughs> so the cloud has encountered the outermost planet of this system, which disappears. Oh no! Uh, it's, it, we must be in between the, uh, the the cloud must be in between us and the planet. Yeah, because that's how that works. In astronomy. (laughs) But no, the cloud is probably consuming the planet because it consumed a planet. It also changes its trajectory, which it does now, which Kirk claims is impossible. Hmm. Not necessarily. Obviously, it's not. It did it just now. (laughs) So it's impossible, but it's something that's happening. So it must actually be possible, Kirk. (laughs) This This is why I keep going back to Hitchhiker's Guide. So that's impossible. No, just very, very improbable. Wait, Kirk, are, are, do you see anything that's uh, you know labeled on your sensors as the heart of gold? <laughs> Just checking here. A cosmic cloud and a bowl of petunias. <laughs> Take a left turn at uh, you know Albuquerque, and suddenly, <laughs> now that the cloud has finished devouring an outer planet, it is heading towards the system's one inhabited world. Oh no! Everyone's gonna die. Kirk, very uncharacteristically, is now faced with a dilemma. If he tries to warn the planet, it may cause mass panic. But if he 
doesn't, then they leave no option for any sort of response to this disaster at all. So, so what do you um, do? Do you have people panic or do you want to save people's lives? Now, we can touch on this more later, but I do <laughs> like that the thing that they do to resolve this is ask who's in charge. Hmm. And That's then good. seeing good point there. that it is Governor Bob Wesley, who we previously know from commanding the fleet in the ultimate computer, now voiced by James Doohan, yes. and finding him to be a competent and trustworthy leader. Uh, McCoy advises that they should warn him of the danger because the leader will know how to handle the people. <laughs> now, you know, this guy seems like he's competent, so, you know, don't worry about it. Let, let him decide how to tell people. So no sooner do they decide to warn the planet that the cloud seems to detect the ship and reaches out some sort of tenderly thing to pull it inside. Yoink. Weapons, of course, have no effect because that would be, you know, easy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And the engines don't have enough power to pull free, likewise. So the Enterprise is soon engulfed. They immediately begin being bombarded by large objects inside the cloud that explode on contact with the ship, like giant charged gas blob things. Yeah, they're like weird antimatter or something like that. It's not entirely clear. Yeah. Kirk orders to give off an antimatter pulse, which repels the blobs, but takes a lot of the ship's power. Uh, Spock speculates that these may be something analogous to a living organism's teeth that breaks up matter that enters the cloud. Are they socialist teeth? <laughs> sure. Socialist gas <laughs> teeth. <laughs> so this is when this is when this episode starts feeling like it should be educational. <laughs> yes, uh, it's like suddenly we're on the fantastic voyage here yeah, or something. But it's not. Maybe it's what's space. so interesting because it's like this feels like they're trying to be educational. It's like, this is like teeth in non-gas-related species. Teeth <laughs> masticate food, so then break it up so that it can be more easily swallowed. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why you have teeth, children. Like, Spock, there's no children. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, they're trying to save the children on the planet. Yeah, the Vulcan children are doing their sexy Orion dances. And... <laughs> <laughs> So the cloud uh, does not seem to interrupt their communications, and they're soon able to receive a call from Wesley, who takes the news very soberly and decides that he has no choice but to save as many of the planet's children as possible while Kirk tries to find a solution since they do not have time for a total evacuation. No, it seems kind of weird that the, you know, keep having situations where having some means to quickly evacuate a large section of a populational planet would be very, very useful and, you know, might come in handy uh, sometime down the road when there's maybe, I don't know, like some sort of supernova going on that could uh, wipe out an important planet somewhere in the galaxy. You would think so. The number of times that an entire frickin' planet is threatened on these shows. Mm -hmm. You'd think there'd be some sort of, of you know, thing in place. Anything. Yes. <laughs> An emergency, oh crap, get off the planet button. In the briefing room, the crew talks about how this is possibly a living cloud, and even if it's alive, then it must eat matter to live, and it's simply grazing on the planets around it. So the Enterprise is now in this thing's digestive system, and they seem to have no choice but to move to the other end of the digestive system. If you uh, know what I mean. And with luck, they might give it some indigestion along the way. So uh, what happened to Uranus? <laughs> and it's the size of... Jupiter, Neptune, and Uranus combined. 
And now we know why. I don't think Uranus was actually on the list. They missed a joke. <laughs> yes. Soon the ship is moved into the next part of the organism, which is a tunnel-like thing with huge spires of antimatter, possibly analogous to the small intestine, where similar structures in your small intestine absorb nutrients from masticated and partially digested food. But somehow this mashes into matter and then explodes. Yeah, so it's a little bit more uh, hands-on in the uh, matter-energy conversion here as opposed to the chemical uh, mix, which is within you get. So they need to keep the shields and their little antimatter bubble thing at full power to maintain the ship in this super harsh environment, which is draining power ludicrously fast. And apparently, if they get to two anti-kilos of antimatter, they will be dead in space. What is an anti-kilo? Well, I'm guessing it's a kilogram, but it is made out of antimatter. Yeah. So, uh... Doing a, a little, so that's like 8.9 times 10 of the joules worth, uh, 16th joules of worth of energy there, which is, which is a bit. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but would, wouldn't gravity affect antimatter the same way as anything else? That's actually an open question. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> uh, it's, it's probably affects it very similarly, but there is enough wiggle room and uncertainty that we can't quite, uh, last, at least last, on my last time I, uh, looked in the papers on this uh, particular issue that uh, we can't be 100% certain there. And if there is a difference, it could actually mean like a lot of weird stuff. Well, then maybe we do have to measure it in anti-kilos. I'll, I'll take uh, kilos as, as opposed to pounds, all the same. <laughs> I mean, if you want it to react weird, you should measure it in imperial. <laughs> <laughs> so how many furlongs to the fortnight is that? <laughs> so Scotty gets an idea. All these things outside are made of antimatter, so they can beam it aboard, and he can put it in a force field box and power the engines with the antimatter that just beamed in from outside. Oh, well, that's actually quite convenient and, and useful. Wait a moment, there's all this antimatter around them right now, and if they were to be, uh, you know, say, you know, restructuring that in some fashion, they could potentially form some sort of super weapon against this, this cloud entity, eh? They could, probably. All right. <laughs> let's stop thinking about this then so they put the antimatter in a force field box which it, it's a normal glass box but otherwise the plan works fine and it solves their engine troubles so so far we've had a moral dilemma a admittedly quick problem and solution but still something and some forward plot movement mm-hmm so we got and then we're moving right along here you know these things are only like half an hour too it's like we're actually like getting plot elements here this is weird after this adventure, Spock informs them that they are less than an hour away from the planet, but also they've determined that the cloud does in fact have some sort of brain. And Kirk orders them to take the ship to the base of the brain, and if necessary, self-destruct the ship to kill it before it reaches the planet. I'm having flashbacks to Spock's brain again, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, they did say brain a good number of times. Yes. <laughs> brains, brains, brains! Now that... No, no, we, we just have to be careful. As long as Spock doesn't, like, have an audible experience here, we're going to be okay, right? Kirk has yet another moral dilemma, which is two in one episode. Which I feel like is more than happened in the entire original series. <laughs> uh, he had the one time on the, uh, the planet about giving away weapons to people. That wasn't necessarily a moral dilemma. That was a, like, 
excusing America's war crimes dilemma. Well, he sort of thought about it in a, we're not going to quite resolute this episode here at the end. There might have been a dilemma. Maybe. Anyway. (laughs) So, is it right to kill this giant, possibly entirely unique, and maybe even intelligent, we have no way of knowing creature, to save thousands and thousands of, actually, we know they're intelligent creatures? Hmm. Uh, the needs of the many versus the needs of the one or the you know, the few here is this one of those sort of things, right? It seems to be. I mean, they don't spend a of ton of time big. talking about it other than saying that they believe that killing is fundamentally wrong under all circumstances, which is a viewpoint never yet expressed. They blow up so many ships in these shows. But yet, only now, when millions, potentially billions of people are, lives are at risk, do we... Hold back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not seeing that they could talk about a moral dilemma here, but they don't really. Kirk just goes, one day I said that all we have to do is say, I will not kill today, which is also the first time we've had a callback to a previous episode in one of these things. And (laughs) is it wrong to kill to save people? Not not as much so. I mean, you can have a debate, but you're talking about saving like literal thousands of people here. So... There is, you know, something to be said, you know, you know, about the philosophy of absolute pacifism, but that's not Kirk's vibe here. Governor Wesley calls again. They've evacuated a fraction of the children. At least some will be safe. And this gives Kirk the constitution to, like, save the planet, regardless of if he has to kill a thing. Which I mean, it makes sense. He's like, oh, no, more children will die. I guess my moral dilemma is over, at least for the moment. Well, that's convenient. Let's go. But Spock does, in fact, have a plan. If he reaches out with his mind, he may be able to tell if the cloud is intelligent and then, in fact, make contact with it. It's time to mind meld somehow. Uhura hooks up the universal translator to something and is able to play the cloud's reply if indeed it does reply. Well, that's kind of useful. We should have tried this earlier. Yeah, this is a, apparently a standard feature of the universal translator is reading brain so- somethings. Yeah, well, I have heard it uh, argued that that's kind of what the Universal Translator is supposed to do, but that kind of asks, begs some more questions. That it does. <laughs> then again, well, I think it was uh, Voyager had uh, you know something where like constantly everyone's brainwaves on the entire ship were being monitored by some system. <laughs> so maybe this case. So Spock reaches out literally with his arms to just look ridiculous and figuratively with his mind. And he makes contact with the cloud. Hello, cloud. How are you doing today? The cloud sounds suspiciously like Nurse Chapel. Well, uh, Michelle Barrett does uh, do the the computer in later Star Trek. So maybe that's just what the Universal Translator sounds like already? That is true. Spock is slowly able to explain that they, in fact, are living things. Like how the cloud is. They're just a lot smaller. And there's many more of them that live on the large things that it's going to eat soon. Wait, that doesn't make sense to a cloud. How could it be so small, so tiny, itty-bitty? You are like ants to me. So to to help understand Spock lets the cloud inhabit its mind and it wanders around the bridge a bit, then expresses a desire to not kill and agrees that it would be best if it went back to where it came from and leaves. Well, that was an anticlimactic sort of resolution, but kind of a good one, actually. You don't have to murder anybody, and it's just going to be like, oh, oh, sorry, I didn't know this galaxy was inhabited. They tell Wesley that he can bring the children home, and they escape the cloud through its sensory organ at the top of the brain. Kirk asks Spock about what he saw, and he replies, the wonders of the universe. 
sweet. Can, can, can you share some of them with us? Nope. No. No, screw you too, Spock. Well, I did like it. It had, it's, I think it had a good moral <laughs> dilemma and a weird moral dilemma that they didn't address anything of. Yeah, it's just, yeah, you know, Star Trek's pretty good at asking questions and not necessarily doing much more than that. That is true. Uh, at times. In original but, series, uh, definitely. Yes, especially in the original series. But I think they went a little bit uh, further than just that basic thing where it's like or some sort of consideration was put forward, even if, you know, say, you know, the buck was passed to a certain degree. I think um, I was kind of surprised how relevant bits of the show keep being to the current, uh, I mean, as of now, end of 2020, but when this comes out, it will be the beginning of 2021 situation. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, they were they had the minor discussion, which is something that people have brought up of whether you tell people that they are doomed because of the idea that it's going to create mass uncontrollable panic. Generally in the camp of you tell people and let them decide if they're going to panic or not. And there is going to be a large number of people who don't. What's particularly interesting is uh, just generally, and I've been hearing just a ton of stories about the uh, flu pandemic, like just comparisons between the, you know, what would be, was formerly known as the Spanish flu pandemic, even though it's a misnomer, and modern pandemic, because they are drawing a lot of these historical comparisons recently. And there was a ton of panic and misinformation and weird stuff going on during the flu pandemic, but all of it was because they didn't tell people what was going on. It's like, so people are just kind of dying everywhere. What's up, guys? Uh, nothing. Um, hey, it's Spain's fault over there. Totally not a, anything we've done. This is a new thing now. We could talk about it. Uh, and all the people that died before this point, yeah, they don't count. Yeah, in, in areas where they were getting actual factual information, I didn't mean that to rhyme, they was not panic everyone worked together buckled down like did as much quarantining and whatever as they could understand at the time and mostly got through the thing more or less unscathed places where they were blatantly lying to people and telling them that everything was fine or not giving them any information at all the messages that you were getting from your leadership uh were contradictory to what you were seeing with your own eyes yep which meant that it did foster an atmosphere of conspiracy, panic, rumor, superstition, etc. Hey, is there anything weird going on as far as uh, conspiracy theories uh, these days? <laughs> just just kind of wondering. <laughs> Which is why I thought it was interesting that they didn't really go to a discussion on whether or not people would panic in this situation. They went to who's the leadership on this planet and do we trust them to disseminate this information in a useful way? <laughs> Yes, because <laughs> if they're going to be useless and, you know, half truth, half lie to people, then it's just going to cause problems. And yeah, it's, this might not be a good, good thing. And Well, it kind of sucks to be the people either way in that case, but uh, sucks more for them in one case over another. But, but we, we know Wesley's a you know level-headed sort of fellow here. Um, wasn't he one of the ones that was going to shoot the Enterprise, though? Yes. Yes, okay. But only because the computer was killing everyone. So, he's a good guy. <laughs> now, there are the moral dilemma we already touched on a bit. I mean, they didn't really go into it, but it is kind of a... 
if they were going for absolute pacifism, then you would have a pretty major dilemma of if the only way to save thousands of people is to kill one entity, then that does not mesh well with a philosophy of complete, total, absolute pacifism. But as we've talked about in earlier episodes, that philosophy is, in fact, relatively rare. It's rare and uh, definitely not what uh, Kirk's all about here. He's much more of a, I don't want to kill people, but still got some duties to go through here. So, you know. And at this point in the discussion, while they're acknowledging the fact that this thing could be sentient or intelligent, they actually don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's time to investigate. Even a unique, you know, completely unique animal. One, I think one would have a hard time arguing that you should let it kill thousands and thousands of people in order for its own right to survive. Now, that is a, like, you know, species bias, which we tend to generally agree with. Yeah, I, I guess uh, to a very different sort of perspective here, you know, you know, invert the thing and, re- and rewind the conversation a little bit back to viruses. Uh, is it right to destroy and completely eradicate a virus that's killing, you know, tons of people? Yeah, from the virus's point of view, probably not. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, to make sure that it, you know, never hurts anyone ever again, you have to, you know, just specifically eradicate it and make sure there's no more of it left. Then, yeah, then you are technically ending the continuation of a unique uh, sort of life form here. And it sucks for that life form, but it's kind of what people are going to be doing if they are trying to get rid of that disease. Just different matters of scale, I guess. Yeah, which is another thing that the episode goes into in an interesting way. Because the scale difference of the cloud and humans is actually sort of analogous to humans and something like a bacteria or a virus. And we, operating on these different scales, wouldn't actually have any particular way of telling if bacteria were intelligent or sentient the way we understand those terms they fundamentally can't be with the way interactions between microscopic things have to function to create the emergent systems that we consider to be sentience but yeah there's a certain amount of uh data you need to be able to manipulate here and you just don't got the the, the bandwidth for it uh, sorry <laughs> I mean, in the way that we understand intelligence, there could be some completely other way of understanding these things or organizing yourself that we don't yet understand. So, so what if bacteria was just the, the the fingers of some being in another dimension <laughs> touching into our cosmos? Something like that, maybe. That's a pretty um, inappropriate <laughs> way of touching. Well, didn't Futurama do uh, an episode about that with the uh, inappropriate touching from beyond uh, their universe? Probably. Yeah. No, that was one <laughs> of the movies, I think. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Star Trek. <laughs> but the thing is, they did, like, the, you, you run into this dual issue. Um, is the thing sentient or not? And if it isn't, then you have to decide whether it's right to basically kill an animal to save sentient life forms. And is it intelligent or not? And if it's intelligent, can you talk to it and work out something? Which is eventually what they did. And... Uh, you would imagine in many situations, see, in many situations, that makes the whole thing a little bit moot. At that point, it just becomes a matter of negotiation. Because if we suddenly did discover that, like, a flu virus or something was sentient and was capable of communicating, we could probably work out a deal. It's like, okay, could you, like, not make us feel horrible constantly and kill us? 
Yeah. Um, we'll let you continue to exist in that case, and we'll figure out some way to have that happen. Yeah, we'll stop that fighting cool? you. Maybe we can help you get into an artificial environment where you're not killing things. Is killing your host organism inherently something that you would value or not? No. Killing the host organism isn't exactly great for the virus anyway. It's like, okay, you've, you've reproduced a lot, but you're now kind of going nowhere. Congrats. So, like, it it becomes a different discussion once you get into the we can communicate. Though you could always run into the uh, situation where it's like, okay, we can communicate, but it doesn't believe that we're we're intelligent beings uh, still. Or alternatively, that it does and doesn't care. Yeah, they did resolve it pretty equitably at the end, which I did like because it's going with the whole all we have to do is understand each other and things can work out message. Yeah, and plus, you're, if you're a giant gas cloud that's floating through the cosmos and you are kind of unique or you've only ever run into other giant gas clouds and been able to communicate with them, you know, having something like this happen is kind of like bizarre and weird. And so you're like, I need to like maybe reflect on this a little bit before I go eat this planet. So I'm going to go over here and think about the morals of the situation and uh, I'll bother a different galaxy for the time being. How about that? It is interesting that they just had it leave. Yeah. <laughs> like you could have worked out something equitable. There's a lot of rogue uh, moons and asteroids and stuff, you know, zooming around yeah. that cause problems later. Yeah, it would be kind of cool to have, you know, sort of a deal between the Federation and a being like this to basically help clean up space junk. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, there's a, you know, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Kessler syndrome or whatever it is, where the, uh, but bunch of the debris over a planet could you like not eat the planet just the stuff over it so we can get to the planet cool. <laughs> all right oh that's that works <laughs> just hang out nearby in orbit and just sort of grab the stuff that's nearby and then once once all it's cleared out uh you can go over and eat an asteroid over there how about that yeah all okay. those times <laughs> that they like had a problem with asteroids and had to change the gravitational constant of the universe and all that stuff now yeah, it would have been easier the to uh, just ask somebody who's able to eat asteroids to, to work on that for you so it'd be really you helpful. Know, there was a there was a gas cloud at that episode too, wasn't there? <laughs> you know, you're right. There was. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't just ask the calamarine. <laughs> Why did they like that word so much? This is a, this is an aside, but that word shows up at least two or three times in various Star Treks. Yes. I'm not sure why they like because it so much. It's fun to say, I guess. I suppose. I wonder what the origin of this is. I can look this up later. It's not relevant here. <laughs> comparative gas cloud studies is one room over (laughs) that would be a fun thing top 10 star trek gas clouds and by the way i i did a little more calculations the uh that that two kilograms of antimatter there two antikilos that's about 42 megatons uh of uh uh you know destructive power there oh well fun that's of course, double it when you combine it with actual matter, but you know. Okay, so I think we covered a lot of the moral things. I had like two physics questions for you. Oh, go ahead. Go for it. All right, so this gas cloud thing is apparently twice the mass of Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus. Now, is this mass or size? It said size, but I guess we can't know, which I guess would make the question of whether the thing just being in the solar system would have already screwed stuff up too much a bit of a problem since we can't know how dense the thing actually is now the you know the the, the, an object of sufficient mass to basically eat planets suggests that it's going to have a mass that is at least larger than one planet 
Uh, so, and especially after you've eaten one of those planets, that suggests maybe a mass of at least two planets. Uh, and therefore, you are going to run into issues with gravitational uh, perturbation of uh, planets in their orbits. Now, this thing's moving pretty fast. It's getting between planets in different orbits in a few hours. So that suggests that the that it can come in and out very quickly. And so the net work being done by its gravitational pull on the other planets is going to be potentially very small compared to what it could be if it just was hanging out for a good long, long time. Um, but still, it is going to mess up the orbits a little bit. Uh, just sort of a question of how much that's going to destroy the environment of those planets or not. Well, that makes me wonder this other question first. So it eats the planet, which one would assume would put the mass of the planet inside it, thus adding to its general total mass. But they say that it digests the planet by turning, by through a matter-antimatter explosion, turning the planet directly into energy. Now, I know energy is wonky and has its own interactions with mass, but would that reduce the overall mass of the entity, or would the energy inside still count as mass gravitationally? Uh, it, they're the total um, uh, energy density uh, in terms of you know looking at Einstein's uh, gravitational equations uh, would be about the same. Uh, yeah, it just would be sort of interacting in a little different, uh, different ways because it's, you know, now a bit more dispersed and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it is going to effectively going to have a very similar gravitational sort of imprint on what's going on. Wow. Gravity is weird. Yes. <laughs> it's like, cause it's not just really mass, it's mass energy because they're kind of equivalent at the same time. And it's like, wow. So you can have a, 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 a sparse gas throughout the universe that's just photons, and you're like, okay, and you could still solve Einstein's equations even when everything you have is just photons. It's like weird, man. Oh, that is weird. <laughs> <laughs> the follow-up question, which you may have needed extra details to know, even when this thing leaves, it's taken the mass of an entire planet out of this solar system. Yep. That's also going to screw things up, <laughs> uh, though. To a certain, uh, you know, uh, I guess time frame is okay. Assuming it doesn't screw up directly the mass of the one planet, the lack of the second planet here is now going in the long term going to uh, change up what is sort of the equilibrium state of the orbits of the system. Now, this might be a very minor change, or it could be a very large one, and it kind of isn't clear which one it's going to end up being. But I would suggest they maybe think about moving the people off the planet anyway. So basically they bought themselves time for a proper evacuation and the planet's just screwed no matter what they do. Uh, good chance, yes. But uh, it's maybe something to study to see, to make sure that's going to be happening. And who knows, maybe this planet's going to get ejected from the, uh, the system and go to some place called SETI Alpha something or other and, uh, you know, and uh, get, you know, and, and run into a planet there to, you know, explode it. And everything will be, uh, you know, just peachy over there because now there's going to be, you know, changing of orbits there. And uh, there's going to be a, you know, whole, whole whole cascade of sort of things going on that eventually leads to some asteroid traveling through some distant part of the universe that brings the building blocks of life to a new sector of the galaxy, starting an entire uh, new, uh, you know, you know, explosion of civilizations millions of years down the road. All the Wesleys. Yes. <laughs> the Wesley civilizations. Like, this this guy's, like, the, the Wesleyan 
next in is a first name and this guy's name is his last name but it just you can't escape the connotations we're getting here <laughs> yes <laughs> as any long-term star trek fan especially when he started watching in the 90s so uh tell me about his warp bubbles then <laughs> okay i think unless we have anything else for this episode well i could go through the uh the bits of the human digestion system if you like sure i mean it's as educational as this show yeah, so we start with the mouth. Uh, that's where you got all your teeth and your tongue, and you can you got the saliva that helps you sort of like start the whole process there, getting things nice and damp. Which in a gas and, cloud uh, would be analogous to antimatter gas bubbles that explode everything, which is way cooler than teeth. Hooray! What if I had antimatter teeth? That'd be weird. My face would explode. <laughs> anyway, uh, next up, uh, so you, you start swallowing things, and it goes, and the food goes into your esophagus, which is this kind of like tube sort of thing. It goes down through your chest, and uh, there's like a, a, a bit of a ring-like muscles at the bottom that you know, can, you know, when you swallow, open up and let things into your stomach. Stomach, of course, is a big sack-like thing in the middle of your belly there, and uh, it's all sort of like filled with enzymes and things like that. And start, and that's where the real chemical part of the digestive process starts. They kind of skipped that um, in this episode. Yeah, because um, I guess the brain, its brain is in its stomach. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, then you go on to the small intestine where uh, th- you know, things have been broken up quite a bit. And so it's more, more of a sludge, I guess you could say. And that's where you run the little uh, things on the walls of the uh, intestinal uh, uh, wall there that help uh, you know, break things down more, uh, you know, you know, more as far as the chemical stuff and you know, absorb it into the bloodstream and that sort of stuff. And there's a bunch of enzymes and water and things like that. And it's, it's all sorts of a weird slurry of stuff here. And, you know, there's, Stuff coming in from various organs nearby, like the liver has some stuff it wants to send over here and some things are going off. It's like, we're going to take some of this fluid here and take it to your kidneys and gallbladder's like, hello, I've got stuff to do as well. I'm going to help you digest some fats. Uh, but eventually all this stuff that hasn't been absorbed ends up at your uh, colon, aka your large intestine, which is a, a big sort of storage, longer term-ish sort of processing thing and that's where your stuff you know that you've eaten really kind of starts turning into poop um and then you got your rectum and your anus and we'll just leave it there at the pot of humor unless you want me to go into all that and with all of that i think we can see how this show actually could have been fairly good if they'd stuck with the original plan to make the animated series an educational children's program yeah because like you just kind of like all right the plot is there but you use it as a means to talk about stuff. And then like suddenly the plot is like not meandering and weird, but like kind of focused because they have to get to certain things. Yeah. I mean, what if this was like, they could have had exactly this episode, but like, here's every part of the digestive system. It's magic school bus, (laughs) but with the enterprise. Yes. The enterprise goes through your digestive track. Congratulations. You now have uh Spock worms. Yeah. Though that would have been hilarious because it would have meant that Spock would have had to stand next to a diagram of the human digestive system and explain it to Kirk like he was an idiot. Yes. <laughs> well, he could, you know, argue, you know, like uh, that uh, it's like, okay, you know, you may be, you know, you're not a doctor, uh, you know, captain. Um, and I know you already know all this, but just to be sure, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of a, you know, maybe... Maybe Kirk doesn't know, but I'm going to pretend I'm explaining this to Lieutenant Arix here. So, <laughs> Oh, that's true. Maybe he doesn't have the same kind of digestive system and he's just confused. 
you know, he has like three arms, you know, three legs, you know, he could like have two stomachs or something like that. It's like, you know, everyone, almost everyone else has just one. Come on. Except for cows, they have a bunch. Okay, that'll probably <laughs> wrap things up for now. So I think it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Woo! Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show. I hope you're having a wonderful time here in the far future of 2021. And we got some prizes to hand out here because our uh, contestants have been racking up, once again, a bunch of points. Our first prize is the giant enemy crab prize, which goes to our space cloud of the week. Because if we poke and explode its brain just right, it might just not eat any more planets anywhere or anything else. Uh, because it will have died. So, you know, what does it win, Gepwin? You get... The super antimatter weapon that you like pick up and you know there's probably only one of and you want to use it on the giant enemy crab weak point thing but you have to save it because maybe there's a different bigger giant enemy crab and then you find out it was the final boss and feel stupid. Well, if you can speed it without using it, I guess that makes you kind of really good at what you're doing. And hey, this time we didn't have to use it anyway, so hooray! Yeah, it's one of those RPGs where you can fix it with a 70% dialogue choice. Nice. Our second prize uh, to hand out is the poor piloting prize, which I guess it's a little uncertain if it goes out to Sulu or Lieutenant Eric here, uh, because, you know, they just kind of fly up next to the cloud and get grabbed by it for no good reason. What's up with that? I don't know. What do they win, Gepwin? They should get at least an old-timey telescope, because they always get so close to things. And why? The, this ship can measure stuff at light years distance, and they're always like right up in something's grill. Well, maybe it's uh, suffering from uh, you know, a, a submarine sort of vibes here. It's like, well, we have a view screen and we think we're far away, but we're actually right on top of it. Whoops. Oh. They shouldn't have turned that telescope around. <laughs> Our final prize is the Mine Over Mine prize, which goes to Smock in the Cloud for basically switching points of view for a little bit. What do they win, Gepwin? They win a Peace on Earth and Goodwill Kumbaya Award for always just working things out, which I will admit it's refreshing to get back to some old good old Star Trek stuff of if we can just talk, all our problems suddenly go away. Yeah, if we just communicate, maybe things don't have to be awful. Imagine that, folks. Imagine that. Anyway, that's all the prizes we got this week. Uh, go ahead and take us away, Gap. Yes, thank you for all of our contestants and everyone out there for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! I do not like the sound of this next episode. Well, if I remember correctly, at least it gives some of the characters more to do. Okay. It's, it's, it's like literally sirens, seems yes. like. <laughs> and it, it like knocks out all the boys and they got like visions or something like that. So your her has to, you know, step up and be all like, all right, I'm in charge now. Yeah, this is called the Lorelei Signal. Yes. Remember, remember Dice Funk season three? Oh. Yeah, Lorelei. Oh. Did they do that on purpose? I have no idea. <laughs> no, it wasn't season season three had like the song references or something. 
Oh, no, oh you're right. Uh, it was season two. There we go. <laughs> Some uh, listeners might know what we're talking about, but the rest do not. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but this is just for us. Yes. <laughs> this next episode seems to be about a group of beautiful, scantily clad women, which I guess will be mildly less creepy drawn, and how they steal the life force of men. Wait a moment, didn't this happen to Harry Kim once? Yeah, it's not uncommon, apparently. Yeah. Space is weird like that, I guess. Yeah, lots of life force stealing women out there. Hmm. That's not reading into who writes these things at all. So what you're saying is we need some uh, more life force stealing men out there in the universe. I mean, we've got some of them and some of these too. That was in Not next true. gen at least once, maybe twice. Oh yeah, I remember that the, the one time and uh, you know, Troy gets wrapped into a scheme and and she's like, "Ah, I'm getting old now. This is weird." Yeah, and then there was sexy Irish ghost. Sub Rosa, no. <laughs> All right, so next episode we get another <laughs> one of these ones that is written by a woman but still adheres to Star Trek's general philosophy on women, apparently. So a little awkward, you know. Well, let's see which one beats out, because they seem to be using blatant misogynistic sexism to try to say the women get to do something, which is a weird sci-fi trope. All the men are incapacitated, so the women who normally don't get any screen time get to do something for once. A little awkward, but it's a thing, I guess, that we have to take a look at. Yeah, that's just like all <laughs> these shows. <laughs> so next week, we'll have a thing to look at. On Watchers of yes. Tomorrow. <laughs> Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the boys are useless again. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>